Welcome to the Patricia Raskin Show, the program that helps you turn obstacles into opportunities, challenges into solutions, and find answers to tough questions. And now, the award-winning powerhouse voice of radio. Here's your host, Patricia Raskin. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Patricia Raskin Positive Living Show. We're in our 22nd year here on Voice America, and very proud of that. This is the program that shows you how to turn your problems into solutions and your obstacles into opportunities and make your dreams come true. We have a great program today. We're talking about conflict, and we all have conflict in our life. How do we handle it? Do we handle it differently at different times, depending upon the situations? We have an absolute expert who has written the book on this to talk to us today. We have Ralph Kilman, PhD, who was the CEO of Kilman Diagnostics. He's in California, Newport Coast. He's created online courses and assessments on conflict management, change management, expanding consciousness, transformation, and he's worked with companies such as Amazon Bank of America, DuPont, Exxon, Mobile, Chase, Microsoft, and the list goes on and on. Ralph is an internationally recognized authority on systems change. He's consulted with numerous corporations in the United States and Europe and in healthcare and financial and government, including the Bureau of Consensus and the Office of the U.S. President. Ralph has published more than 20 books and 100 articles. In 2001, he published his legacy book, which integrates everything he's created during the past five decades of his professional life. And today what we're talking about is his newest book. His newest book is Mastering the Thomas Kilman Conflict Instrument Code, TKI. And it's celebrating more than 50 years of resolving all kinds of conflict. Welcome, Ralph. Thank you so much, Patricia. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, this is really fascinating, you know, to really talk about this. So, you know, I think my my question is, what drew you to this whole field of conflict in the first place? Well, when I was in undergraduate school at Carnegie Mellon University in Pittsburgh in the 1960s, there were a few professors who talked about conflict in their work. Uh, I didn't really gravitate to that at the time, but it was in the background. And then when I went to UCLA in the early 70s to get my PhD, that's where I met Dr. Ken Thomas, who was doing his dissertation on interdepartmental conflict. Uh, meanwhile, I was interested in actually measuring vague concepts in the behavioral sciences like personality and other things like that. And Ken and I just hit it off and we decided, why not do an instrument on conflict management? Now, mm. why I was drawn into that, uh, people have asked me that before. And one possibility is that my parents immigrated from Germany uh, as a result of Nazism. My father, Protestant, my mother, Jewish. They had to get out. Otherwise, it would be very difficult for them. And I think that was a seed of conflict that stayed with me throughout my life because I heard all the stories of the mega conflicts going on in the world with World mm -hmm. War II, and that was the background for my development. But it wasn't until I met Ken Thomas that I think it all crystallized and said, yes, I want to work on conflict, and let's see if we can measure this very complex topic. Yeah, amazing. Well, conflict seems to be on the rise with people taking mm -hmm. even stronger positions um, with less tolerance of alternative perspectives. So in this webinar, what I want to ask you is, what are you seeing and what can we do about it? 
Well, certainly conflict has escalated. Uh, when I developed my instrument with Ken in the early 70s, conflict was a topic in a sociology course, maybe a political science course, a little bit in psychology. That was it. It wasn't mainstream. It has become mainstream. And I think the basic reasons is the speed at which the world has been changing, deregulation, social media, the Internet, uh, basically diversity in the workplace, globalization. And it brings people together who then have different views, different perspectives. And this goes on more rapidly than ever before. Hence, conflict. And mm. there's become even polarization where people are pushed into extreme positions. Mm -hmm. They don't even listen or they don't even talk to one another, which only makes the matter worse. And so that's what we're seeing. So that's more than seeing. any other time in the history of the world, we really have to learn what is conflict and how to manage it so that we can move forward in a very healthy and positive way. So walk us through the TKI conflict model, the two underlying dimensions. There's three diagonal dimensions and five conflict modes. So share with us and in a way, maybe even give an example, because I know, and I, I've studied your work, that these different, the five modes of conflict, we might use them at different times. We're not going to use one mode all the time. So I'd love you to talk about that. Sure. Well, first, the two underlying dimensions which define these five conflict modes the first one is assertiveness, which is the extent to which you try to get your needs and concerns met in a conflict okay. situation. The other dimension is cooperativeness, which is the extent to which you try to get the other person's needs and concerns met in the situation. So in this balance of trying to get my needs met versus trying to get your needs met, we can define in that space five conflict modes. So okay. competing is I assert myself to get my needs met and I'm not at all concerned about your needs and concerns, not at all. The opposite of competing is accommodating. I'm not at all concerned about my needs, but I want you to have what you want and what you need. That's accommodating. Compromising yeah. is in the middle between those two. It's like, well, instead of you getting all your needs met and all my needs met, let's flip a coin. Let's take a middle position. Let's strike a bargain. Uh, let's split the pie. So if we want to meet at four o'clock versus three o'clock, let's make it 3.30, make it easier on everyone. That's compromising. And then there's avoiding, which is low in assertiveness and low in cooperativeness. You leave the situation. You don't have the conversation. Mm -hmm. You simply leave and withdraw from the conflict situation. Now, I should say, just like all the other modes, there's a time and a place for each mode. So there's sometimes an excellent time to avoid is when people's tempers are hot they're not listening to one another, or they need more time to collect more information before they can make a decision. So there's good reasons to avoid, but there's yeah. also bad reasons to avoid. And that's when the issue is very, very important to both you and the other person, but because you don't like conflict, you stay away from it. Mm -hmm. So nobody's needs get met. Mm -hmm. Now, the fifth mode is collaborating. And when I describe it to you, it first sounds, oh, let's collaborate all the time. That sounds right. fantastic. But yet again, it depends on the situation. So collaborating is, in fact, when you get all your needs met and I get all my needs met. So it's a win-win. It's a win-win. It's a win-win. But that, that can only happen under specific conditions. For example, we have to trust one another to share what we really want and need. We have to have the time to hold that conversation because it takes time to collaborate. We have to have good listening and communication skills so we can hear what each of us has to say. 
and there has to be low stress. If there's high stress, we can't think clearly. We're just trying to protect ourselves. So unless these various conditions are met, you can't collaborate. In fact, it would be a waste of time to collaborate about something that's not that important or only concerns one person and not the other. So the whole idea of these five modes is to find out which ones you use under what conditions. And that's why we developed the Thomas Kilman instrument mm -hmm. to measure this. And mm. interestingly, what we find out that, in fact, some people use the same mode again and again and again and don't even realize they've got other choices. At right. the other extreme, there's people who use all five modes in a balanced way, depending on the situation, mm -hmm. which is the ideal and yeah. every other combination in between. So let me ask you, let me let me give you an example um, that I think is interesting. So when you said avoid, here's one where I think avoiding would work. You're in a political discussion with family members, right? And they're one's to way to the right and one's way to the left. You're not going to get anywhere. So to me, it's better off not discussing it. What's your feeling about that? Well, there's a saying that says, let's agree to disagree. And people simply say, we're not going to resolve this. So why create useless tension and create discord between us? Why don't we just say this is one topic that we're not going to resolve and right. we can have a good relationship. We have a good friendship. We can talk about other things. We just don't talk about this. Right. Sometimes people talk about politics and religion as saying, don't talk about it at the dinner table. Right. <laughs> you exactly. know, talk about exactly. something that's much more pleasant and engaging yeah. and brings people together. Right. But then here's the other one now with the avoiding of not avoiding, because this actually really, really actually recently happened to me, you know, two family members who weren't seeing eye to eye and me being another family member caught in the middle and really feeling terrible because, you know, here I am loving both people. And one of them said, and, and I had a long discussion with one of them and it was painful, you know, and I went to sleep very unhappy because what am I going to do? I love these two people. And the next day I said to the person, you know, how did you sleep? And I said, well, not really that well, because it bothered me. And that person said to me, well, you know, I, I was I was upset more than I usually am. And what I'd like to do is why don't we set up a time when I can be with that other person, maybe go out to lunch with them without you there. And and I said, you know, I think that's a great idea. And then they said to me, do you feel better? Are you are you are you, do you are you feeling better about it? In other words, are you still? And I said, I am. I feel more relieved. And I thought that was interesting because as you said in the beginning, well, maybe um, we don't want to talk about that because it's painful to talk about that stuff, you know, to hear something about someone you love from someone else you love that isn't right. And you're in the middle. It's painful. But on the other hand, Ralph, if we hadn't talked about it, it would have become a huge mega elephant in the room for the next time. Well, the beauty of conflict is while people are often afraid of it, they don't like it, they want to get rid of it, they want to eliminate it. If you can have the conversation, you can right. often learn more and create something new that you would have never had if you didn't have that conversation. Yeah. But you have to make the conversation productive. So these friends of yours or family members need to set up some ground rules so it's more likely they can listen to one another without getting one another upset again. Mm. Yes. Yes. And I think that's true. And again, you know, different, very different points of view. And one gets very triggered by the other point of view rather than, right, just as you said, the ground rules are really important. Let's talk about a few of the other styles, because I think this re people really can relate to. 
And I want you to know, I want the audience to know that I have taught courses on this and I have used your model and people absolutely have loved it. They are, they really enjoy it. And I think the, what people find is they're surprised that all of these five are different and we use them differently. We don't always use them. So as you said, the collaborating mode, yes, of course, I'm a collaborator. I want to do it all the time. But if I'm with a very autocratic person who doesn't want to listen to me, I can't collaborate with them. What do you think? Yeah, definitely. It has to match the style you use with what the other person's doing. For example, a perfect combination, if you will, is one person is competing, another person is accommodating. So one person gets their needs met and the other person lets them do that. Perfect. In fact, there are relationships where one person always gets their needs met in a competing assertive manner and the other person always accommodates. But yet what's interesting, uh, one of the principles is if you want the relationship to last, whether it's a personal relationship or a business relationship, over time, everyone needs to get their most important needs met. So if one person is always accommodating, they may go along for, for a while. But at some point, they may say, I'm not getting my needs met. I'll just go along with the motions until something better gets along, or I'll just leave now and I'll be done with it. So what's important is people need to get their most important needs met if they are going to stay in the situation. Is that called quiet quitting? Yeah. In fact, in in many organizations where people are very much discouraged on how they've been treated and what they see going on, uh, they do the minimum to get by. They'll do just enough so they don't get fired. And that's kind of a quiet uh, resistance, just like it'd be a quiet strike, so to speak, or a slowdown strike where people aren't giving their best because they don't like the situation. And again, they're waiting for something better to come along. So when when is it a good idea to accommodate? Give us an example. An example is when you realize that this topic is more important to the other person than it is to you. Mm -hmm. And there's an implicit pretty in that and saying, hey, it's more important to you. How about I'll let you have your needs met in this situation. I'll do it according to how you want to make the decision. But when we get to the point where there's a topic where it's more important to me than it is to you, I hope you can accommodate to me as well. So it's like going back and forth. When it's more important to me, I get my needs met. When it's more important to you, you get your needs met, which depends uh, then depends on who accommodates whom. So that's for accommodating. And also, if you want the relationship to last, as I mentioned, people need to get their needs met. Well, if we take turns getting our needs met, that's taken into place. That's taking into account. So it's working. So we we talked about avoiding. We talked about collaborating. Right. And um, I want to talk about um, not avoiding uh, competing. We're going to talk about competing because in some cases you have to compete. Right. You're 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 a sports player. That's competition. Yeah. Well, competing is asserting your needs, winning the argument or winning the game, if you will, if it's a sports situation. But it's basically saying that you want you to get your needs met no matter what. And for the time being, you're not at all concerned about the other person. And some people who are more autocratic, they tend to come out very high on competing and they always believe that they're right and they know more than the other people. And so they always assert themselves. In fact, sometimes they even bully other people. That's a form of competing is bullying. Mm. But ultimately, that's going to have a certain consequence. As I mentioned, if other people aren't getting their needs met, you can just do that so many times. But Mm -hmm. competing is very assertive 
And if there's a crisis situation, if there's not enough time to have a discussion, well, then somebody needs to make a decision. You know, we have to run out of a burning building. Let's not sit around and collaborate. Someone's got to say, you go there, you go there. Let's get out of that exit. we got to do it now. So when there's not much time, that's when people can assert themselves and get it done. And you call that competing? Yes. Competing is any time that you are focused on your needs and you're not worrying about figuring out what other people want, need, and you don't Mm -hmm. even have time perhaps to discuss it. Right. But people who are competing all the time, uh, that's also a dangerous situation because you know, do, do are people always right? You know, is a person going to say, I'm always right, therefore my needs should get met? Uh, that's a dangerous situation because in today's world, there are many different points of view and many things to take into account with any complex problem. Mm-hmm. So we've talked about, just now we've given examples of competing, right, of avoiding, of collaborating. And what are our other two? Well, we, we did a little bit on accommodating, and then we have compromising. Yes. And now compromising is right in the middle between competing and accommodating. So it's not like when I'm competing, I'm getting all my needs met. If I accommodate you, you're getting all your needs met. With compromising, think of it as 50-50. We split the difference. So we come up with a solution that works in the meantime, and it satisfies us partially, not fully. Collaborating would satisfy all our needs, present and future. But compromising, it's like splitting the difference. It's a middle ground. So if the issue isn't crucially important, it's moderately important to both of us, but we can live with different solutions, then compromising becomes very workable. And it doesn't take a long time to compromise. You say, I want this, you want that. Let's split the difference. Let's flip a coin. Let's let, let's decide that. So that's compromising. And now, if compromising- you compromise... Yeah, go ahead. Is it sort of like a win-win? I mean, it's not a total win-win, but it is in a way because you don't mind splitting the difference. It's not bothering you to do that. Yeah, but that's because the topic isn't crucial to you as other topics. Right. So you you can easily live with a middle ground position where you only get your needs partially met. So when you say win-win, win-win can mean 100-100. But it can also mean 50-50 if you say, well, as long as that 50% satisfies me, I'm okay. But the true win-win with collaborating is 100%. Everyone gets their needs met, Mm. not 50-50. Now, you link conflict modes to stress. Most people find conflict inherently stressful. What's your advice for how to manage the stress associated with conflict? Well, if there's high stress... Uh, people are not going to be able to mindfully use those five modes we've been talking about. In fact, what's fascinating, under high stress, competing goes to fight, avoiding goes to flee, Mm -hmm. and accommodating goes to freeze. Fight, flight, freeze. And those are the sympathetic nervous system's reactions to fear or threat. It's Mm -hmm. like seeing a saber-toothed tiger in the old days And then all of a sudden, you either run away or you fight or you lie down and pretend you're dead to try to avoid any more pain. Uh, But essentially, fight, flight, freeze are not mindful responses. And when organizations or relationships are under high stress, you got a lot of fight, flight, freeze going on and people are not getting their needs met. Hmm. How do you avoid the fight, flight, freeze? Is it anticipating ahead of time? Is it knowing the kind of person you're going to be talking to? Is it planning ahead? A lot of it has to do with the stress level. 
And when people are stressed out because they're under a lot of pressure to perform or people are yelling at them or they're under deadlines and they don't feel they have enough resources to get the work done, stress, 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 they can't be mindful about anything. And that's when fight, flight, and freeze will kick in so people can at least protect themselves from further harm or what is threatening or fearful in the situation. So we need to find ways to bring stress down. In the U.S., and this is probably going on in other countries as well, you hear about programs on mindfulness, yes, stress reduction, yoga. They're bringing this into the workplace to try to keep stress down so people can use the higher levels of their mammalian and their prefrontal cortex to make good decisions. Whereas fight, flight, freeze comes out of the reptilian brain. It's just like an immediate reaction to protect. But you can't make good decisions when you're trying to protect yourself from threat. So we have to bring those stress levels down. And in today's world, as you can imagine, there's probably more stress than any before. From the political world, the economic world, the social world, social media puts people into stress. And so we have to find ways to reduce the stress so we can use the most forethinking aspects of our human brain. So we can think things through clearly from all we know and use all our skills and abilities. You can't do that when you're under high stress. Mm -hmm. Wonderful. I mean, such interesting and important information, Ralph, truly. We're going to take a break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about how we can specifically apply this in the organization. We've talked about some of it, but not all, because it's a little bit different in the organization than it is in the family, for example. So we're going to talk about, you know, building workplaces with less conflict and how do we do that? And we'll also talk about, you know, conflict that we're having in the world, you know, in terms of outer conflict um, in our world and, and how do we deal with that as well? Right. You're listening to the Patricia Raskin Positive Living Show right here on voiceamerica.com, America's Voice. Stay tuned, folks. We'll be back with Ralph Kilman right after the break. Follow Voice America at facebook.com forward slash voice America for juicy updates from your favorite radio shows and podcasts. Psych Up Live with host Dr. Suzanne Phillips offers a psychological perspective on coping with common and current life issues. This show addresses topics as varied as marital stress, insomnia, depression, raising teens, campus violence, and building self-resilience. Listen in as Dr. Phillips and her guest experts share the latest in books, findings, and information that will inform and enhance your life journey. Psych Up Live is heard every Thursday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. It's time to unlock some of the best-kept secrets in health, wealth, and happiness. Are you ready to live your life to the fullest and hear insider tips from today's experts? Then tune in to The Forbes Factor with celebrity TV host, keynote speaker, and inspirational icon, Forbes Riley. She's a best-selling author and TV fitness expert, and you know her from QVC and HSN. Now, she brings her expert advice and guests to the Voice America Variety Channel. Tune in live every Wednesday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time and 2 p.m. Eastern Time for the Forbes Factor. We guarantee it will be the best hour of your week. Get Unchained. Tune in every Wednesday for Unchained TV on the Voice America Variety Channel. Featuring nationally recognized, best-selling author, TV journalist, and the founder of the Unchained TV free streaming network, Jane Velez Mitchell. 
This program takes you inside a trending lifestyle that's the next wave of human evolution. It all starts on your plate. If you want to revolutionize your life, get happier, more energized, then discover the secret. Tune in to Unchained TV, Wednesdays at 12 p.m. Pacific Time and 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. are listening to the patricia raskin show if you wish to call into our program today please call 1-866-472-5788 that number again is 1-866-472-5788 you may also send an email to patricia at patriciaraskin.com now back to the patricia raskin show hi everyone and we are back and we are talking about conflict conflict at work Conflict at Home, Conflict in the World. My guest is Ralph Kilman. He's the author of the newest book, Mastering the Thomas Kilman Conflict Mode Instrument, TKI, celebrating more than 50 years of resolving all kinds of conflict. Ralph Kilman is the CEO of Kilman Diagnostics, and he's created all kinds of online courses and assessment tools on conflict management. He has worked with major companies such as Amazon, Bank of America, Microsoft, Twitter, NASA, the US Army, the World Health Organization. He's internationally known as an authority on systems change. He's consulted for numerous companies throughout the United States and Europe, including Ford, GE, Lockheed, AT&T, IBM, and he's consulted for numerous healthcare, financial, and government organizations, including the U.S. Bureau of Census and the Office of the U.S. President. Ralph has published more than 20 books and 100 articles. And in 2021, he published his legacy book, which integrates everything he has learned. And again, his newest book, his first book that, that focuses on his tool, is again, Mastering the Thomas Kilman Instrument, celebrating more than 50 years of resolving all kinds of of conflict. Welcome back, Ralph. Thank you, Patricia. It's such a pleasure to be here. Yeah, I just really so such important information. So let's talk about what I asked you before, before the break. How do we apply this in an organization when we have different personalities, different styles from autocratic to cooperative to all the above of you've mentioned? How do we build workplaces with less conflict? Well, typically, uh, and that's the beauty of the Thomas Kilman instrument, it's one thing to talk about the five conflict modes in the abstract, and people can guess about when they use it, how well they use it, if they should do it differently. By taking the assessment tool, they actually find out their typical way they approach conflict. So they may get the results that say you compete most of the time and you hardly ever avoid or you hardly ever collaborate. You find out which modes you might be using too much or too little as compared to a very large normative sample. So if you're using certain modes too much, then you're not using other modes that could be more effective in different situations. So typically it's a big eye opener for people to discover their own self-assessment of to what extent have they been using these conflict modes in their life. Now in an organizational setting, we sometimes change the instructions on the TKI and we say, rather than thinking about all kinds of conflict situations, how do you resolve conflict here in your group 
at the workplace in this department. And then we also give people a second TKI. How do you resolve conflict outside this organization in all the other settings in your life? It is absolutely fascinating to contrast the difference between getting your results for how you resolve conflict at the workplace versus at home or in other settings in your life. And we sometimes find that in other settings in your life, you tend to be more assertive. You use collaborating more, competing, compromising, whereas in the workplace, you're high on avoiding and accommodating. In fact, what I typically find as you move down the organization hierarchy from the CEO's office down to the front line, more and more avoiding and accommodating because people learn it's not safe here to raise issues, to confront conflict, to speak up in front of your boss, keep to yourself, keep quiet. That's the only way you'll survive here. And yet that's very different from how they respond to conflict outside. Mm -hmm. The beauty of having those two assessments is you find that people are able to assert themselves. Mm -hmm. So what's going on in the organization that's preventing the organization from utilizing the wisdom and the skills of the employees? Mm -hmm. So at some point, those people who are always accommodating or compromising have to change their style if they want the organization to change. Well, and also the senior executives have to say, what about our organization, our culture, the reward system, puts pressure on people to avoid and accommodate? What is the consequence if people confront their bosses? If people see that those who get negative performance reviews are the ones who've confronted their bosses, the lesson is you better not confront people here. It's not wanted. It's not desired. Mm -hmm. It will result in negative outcomes. So it allows the organization to say, yeah, behavior has to change. But to what extent is the system, the culture pushing people to protect themselves? Mm -hmm. And that's very important to look at. In fact, I would say this, Patricia, of the behavior that goes on in the organization, 80 percent is driven by the surrounding systems, the culture, the reward system, the, the boss's behavior. And only 20% is your personal choice. So you can ask people to change that 20% of their behavioral choices, but the 80% that's driving their behavior is in the system. So if you switch out those people and hire other people in their place, within six months, same conversations, same conflicts, same avoiding behavior. It's in the system. So with an organization, we have to change the system, support effective conflict management, and not push people to avoid and accommodate and just simply give in to the bosses up the hierarchy. But that has to come from the top, Ralph. It yes. has to come from the CEO down. Exactly. And if if people know that that is not going to change because the CEO isn't going to change, they either stay in that in those modes of accommodating and compromising or they try to get out and find another job. In fact, the typical scenario is they go off-site and hold a training program on conflict management. And the employees learn all kinds of things. They go back to the workplace the next week and they are told, get back to work. And they say, oh, but I learned some really nice things about how we can manage our conflict. I don't care, get back to work. So we find that a lot of what is learned in an offsite safe workshop setting never goes back into the organization because of the culture because of the reward system, Mm -hmm. because bosses say, get back to work. And it's what I call the three-day washout effect. After three days after an off-site workshop took place, it's as if it never took place. Right. It's gone. 
And so the reason that they that they do the workshop in the first place is to give lip service to show that they're doing the right thing. Yeah, we'll keep people busy and then we don't have to change the system. But that will only work to a certain point because then people don't want to go to workshops anymore because it's a waste of time. Their families may benefit from what they learn, but they don't bring it into the organization. And at some point, the enlightened organization and its enlightened leaders say, you know, we have to look at our system. If we want to improve how we manage conflict, we have to look at ourselves at the systems level and not expect people to just buck the system on their own and pay the price and take the consequences. And I want to share with you that what you're saying happened for me as a trainer. I went into a place and uh, it was it was actually on emotional intelligence and people started emoting and saying, look, you know, we hear we do all these things that you're saying, but and and our leaders are okay, but it's not the leader, it's this people at the top in the ivory tower that aren't making change. And so it was very frustrating because these were good workers. They really cared about their job, but they were feeling very frustrated because they felt that whatever we were saying isn't going to do anything because they're going to go back and it'll be the same, not from their bosses, but from the people way at the top. Yeah. You know, and and so I, I think what you're saying is very true. And I'm hoping that leaders are listening to this because I think this is absolutely key. So let me ask you this. I know the answer to this, but I want it. I want it to from from you. What happens when we don't change? What happens, Ralph, when we leave that culture the way it is? People keep accommodating and compromising. What happens? Well, in the old days, decades ago, it wouldn't matter as much because the world was very stable, and you could keep doing the same thing again and again, and you'd be successful. What you did in the present predicted the future. That has all changed. Welcome to future shock. So right now, if you keep doing the same thing and ignore what's needed in the environment and you don't resolve the conflicts that are forcing you to look at different strategic options, you're dead in the water. You will not survive. So right now, more than any other time, if we don't manage our complex problems and conflicts, get them out in the open, resolve them to satisfy most of our needs and our stakeholder needs, our customers, our suppliers, we're not going to survive. Maybe 50 years ago, we could last longer. Now, the way things go, if you don't get your act together and move forward in a positive way, addressing the conflicts that need to be addressed for the important complex problems, you're not going to survive. Absolutely. Let's move this out a little bit to what's happening in the world in terms of the world conflict. Well, there have always been uh, civil wars, international wars. Uh, I think the tendencies for that have absolutely increased. And there's more unrest. There's more polarization. Conflict is more out in the open. And social media platforms and the Internet play a huge role that wasn't being played 20, 30, 40 years ago. So now people are more aware of what's going on in the world, of the conflicts, and they get messages. And there's a lot of disinformation and misinformation on the Internet that propels people into their corners and causes more and more polarization. And when you have polarization, that feeds on tribal consciousness, us versus them. Not only does that take place in an organization, one department versus another, but it also takes place about one nation versus another, or one segment of society versus another. And there's more and more conflict, and people are polarized. Uh, When people have access to arms and munitions, then they go to war. 
whether it's civil war or international war. So the seeds of war are more apparent now than they were 20, 30, or 40 years ago. Hmm. What do you see as the hope for this? Do you see hope through all this? My hope is that we have to take steps starting from public schools to help children and adults expand their consciousness. There are certain stages of consciousness. Egocentric is you are a human being, everyone else is an object and can be treated accordingly. So you're the only real human person and the others, you can do what you want with them. You don't need any empathy. You don't need compassion. They're not human. The next level is ethnocentric consciousness. That's group consciousness. My team, my family, my neighborhood, all white people, all black people, all Christian people, whatever the tribe is, we are human and everyone else is an object and can be treated accordingly. So that sets up what is called tribal consciousness. Mm. Who is going to win? Who's going to be in charge? Us versus them. And since they are objects, we can do what we want with them. We can be violent. We can be aggressive. We can bully them because we're the only ones that are human beings. A lot of war begins with tribal consciousness, us mm. versus them. They took over our land. They are taking away our rights, our privileges. And if we have armaments, then we fight to the death to get it back. That's the seeds of war, whether it's civil war or international war. And we have to overcome that. Then the next level of consciousness is called world-centric consciousness. What does that sound like? What does that feel like? That means we really realize we're all one. We're all in this together. And the ultimate criterion is if someone, let's say we're in the United States, and if someone in Africa is hurting and they're being hurt by someone else, that hurts us in the United States as much as if that happened to our own children. Mm -hmm. That connection says we're part of the human race. If anyone gets hurt, that hurts me. We have to take care of all our needs and wants. We are society. We're a community. We're all human. We all need to work together. We're not there yet, Patricia, but that's where mm -hmm. I believe we're headed. And what mm. I have done in some of my books, I've talked about how we fundamentally have to change the curriculum in public schools. In fact, I even argue that at least 25% of the curriculum should be expanding consciousness. If you don't know who you are and what you're about, feel good about yourself, love yourself, how can you make a good decision about anything else? Mm -hmm. Simply having mean? high math and English scores is not going to make it if you're not a whole person. So when you say that, about expanding consciousness, what would you see in the curriculum, Ralph? Well, people talk about who they are, what their experiences are, what's important to them, what they're afraid of, uh, what it means to be in a family, in a neighborhood. And this has to be done in diverse groups. We can't have a segregated society that leads to war. We have to respect all people of all demographic variations. And that needs to be discussed in groups with facilitators who can help children into their teenage years understand themselves and who they are so they can love themselves and be good people and can make better choices. But right now, the only thing that happens is math, English, biology, science. People don't learn about themselves. They may get their first psychology class when they're in college, maybe in high school if they're lucky. But otherwise, there's no material about who am I? Why am I here? What is my role? What does it mean to be a good person? What have been my traumas? How can I turn those traumas into gifts? And some of this may sound like therapy, 
but I'd say a lot of people could benefit from therapy because it's a basis for better understanding themselves so they can make better choices in life for themselves and for others. Mm. Give us an example of your of the work you're doing and how you've seen it change either families or companies or organizations. Well, one of my favorites takes us back to the 1970s, and this had to do with the whole feminist movement. And there would be workshops which were popular in the 70s on assertiveness training for women. Yes. Because women were often coming out of the 50s and 60s. They had to accommodate. They, they, you know, they had to worry about where their place was in society, on and on. And for the most part, you know, they, they feel that they were always accommodating whoever they were with. And so they had this assertiveness training program. And what a lot of practitioners did, they had them take the TKI before the weekend workshop and after the weekend workshop. And sure enough, after discussion about who am I, what do I want, what are my needs, and am I entitled Am I entitled to get my needs satisfied? Then when they took the TKI a second time, they came out more assertive. They came out mm -hmm. more uh, competing, collaborating, compromising, not just mm -hmm. avoiding and accommodating. Mm -hmm. Now, what's interesting is then they go back home and then you, you might wonder, what are the spouses going to do when they, when they right. have now these wives, quote unquote, who are much more assertive and expect that their needs be taken into account on major decisions for the family? But that's an example of how society can change, where people get a little awareness. This is how I've been behaving. This is what I want and need. Therefore, I need to behave differently. And this is how I can do it. And this instrument points me in the right direction and tells me if I'm succeeding at the changes I want to bring about. Mm -hmm. And that's how we go about it. As I mentioned, in organizations, in workshops and training programs, of course, you want to bring it into the organization. It's not enough just to talk about it in a safe workshop, but that's a beginning. We have to talk about it. It has to be legitimate to talk about. I'll give you an example. I remember being in front of a large audience, uh, might have been like 500 people or something, and I asked people to raise their hand. How many people here know about therapy, Reiki, energy healing, yoga, uh, peacefulness, mindfulness, uh, consciousness raising? Uh, and uh, and uh, are you doing this work on your own? And a lot of people in the audience would raise their hand. Yes, I know about Reiki. I'm doing yoga. I do mindfulness stuff. I read self-improvement books. And then you say, now, keep, now raise your hand if you're talking about this in your organizations. All the hands come down. So they can talk about it in their personal lives. People are pursuing these things. But somehow in the organization, it's taboo to talk mm -hmm. about your consciousness what this means to you, and how to become a better person. It's taboo. You don't talk about it. You keep it to yourself. Mm -hmm. We need to bring this into organizations. In fact, mm -hmm. most adults spend most of their waking lives in an organization. So why save it for Saturday and Sunday where they can be themselves? Right. And your instrument is being used in organizations. Yes, it, it is the uh, biggest selling instrument on conflict management in the world today, I'm pleased to say. Um, yeah. And, I, but, and... but I can tell you this, when Ken and I developed this in the early 70s, as I mentioned, conflict was barely a topic. We, we were just doing academic research. We had no idea that conflict would become such an important topic. We are as surprised as anyone. Interesting. And today, more than ever, because yes. there's conflict everywhere. But I can't say I predicted that. It just kind of happened. 
Right. Do you hear from companies and organizations and families, you know, that they've used the model and it's really helped them? What kind of feedback do you get? The biggest feedback would be it opened people's eyes. That's why I used that expression before to how they approach conflict. And for some people taking the instrument, they had no idea that all they do is compete. And if they don't get their way, they then accommodate. They go back and forth between competing and accommodating. And now they say, my goodness, I have other choices. I have other options. I can be more effective. There's more versatile behavior that's available for me. So that's one of the biggest lessons is just to find out what have you been doing? And it's a self-report. So as long as you're responding to the instrument honestly, you're going to get honest feedback that you never had before. And then you can ponder it. And if you discuss it in a group, you can share with one another. Oh, I'm high on compromising. And I guess I'm always doing this and I don't see the opportunities to collaborate. I'm only partially satisfied most of the time. I can do better than that. Or maybe there are times I should avoid. Instead of always talking and bullying people, sometimes I need to be quiet and listen to other people. So people start realizing they can change their behavior on their own. And hopefully in an organization that gets supported by the surrounding systems where the culture and the reward system rewards people for openly and effectively addressing conflict. Right. But they also need to do it in a team, correct? So that they can talk about it among themselves, because if they have a team, they have different styles and that also helps each other. Yeah. In fact, just a year ago, a year and a half ago, uh, the publisher of the TKI, the Myers-Briggs Company, produced a TKI team report that takes the members of a team and has them respond according to this is how I resolve conflict in this team. And we have tables that show what are the typical conflict modes of the members on the team? What's the distribution? And what is the consequence? What are the particular challenges that this team will face because of its distribution of conflict modes? And what are the remedies? What can we do about it? So it's focused on teams because teams have more and more become the building block of organizations. Mm. Closing thoughts, what would you like to leave our listeners with today about conflict? The most fascinating thing to me has been to look at one's inner conflicts and to realize that how you resolve your inner conflicts says everything about how you resolve your outer conflicts. So what are the inner conflicts? I'll give you an example. Is your life governed by your ego or your soul? Those are two very different perspectives. The ego is about getting famous, being in control, uh, doing well, uh, living forever, uh, being immortal, getting a lot of fame, a lot of attention. The soul asks, why was I born? What am I here to do? What is my mission? What gives me fulfillment? What is my destiny? The ego and soul are two very different voices in your head. And that's a conflict. How do you resolve the conflict? Do you get rid of your ego? Do you ignore your soul? Or can you collaborate and get your ego and soul on the same page, moving in the same direction? You'll get all your energy to move forward in life. Hmm. And, And another internal conflict is my surrounding systems. Are they out there or are they a part of me? Most people think of the surrounding systems, hence the word surrounding, as outside them. Someone else's responsibility. The culture, the strategy, the structure of the organization, that's not me. That's somebody else's responsibility. If everyone looks to the systems as being outside them, who's taking care of the systems? The other approach is to say, the systems are a part of me. We're all one. 
These systems are a part of me. Therefore, it's my responsibility to speak up and do something about these systems. Mm -hmm. And how you resolve that conflict is then how you approach your boss and all other stakeholders in the organization. Mm -hmm. And one of the ultimate internal conflicts is have you resolved your primal relationships or are you still wounded from the past and acting things out on the people in front of you? Picture a, a team meeting in an organization where everyone's acting out their wounds from the past. They don't trust one another because they were violated in the past, on and on. How can we hold a conversation on what we need today to do today if we're all living in the past? Mm -hmm. So essentially, the res resolution of that internal conflict is we have to come to terms with what happened in our lives and whatever those traumas were to turn them into a gift, into something that helps people. So I have more compassion, more empathy for other people because of what I went through. That changes how I approach conflict in the outer world. Hmm. Thank you so much, Rev Kilman. I have to tell you, this is one of the most enlightening uh, interviews that I've done in my work. And so clear and so helpful and so hopeful. And um, thank you again for being a guest on this program. It was my just pleasure. wonderful. Thank you tell, so much. You're welcome. Tell our listeners how they can find you and your work. Okay. Uh, best place is probably my website, which is www.kilman1l2ndsdiagnosticsplural.com. And I have a lot of my articles, my blogs, all about my courses, the TKI, my other assessment tools. There's a lot on that website. And of course, okay. you mentioned my books, and then people can can get those from Amazon and and proceed. And I have all these okay. courses. There's a lot of information. I've been at this for a long time, Patricia. Okay. Thank you so well. And it, it shows and it's all part of you. Thank you so much. Stay on the line for a minute. All right, folks, that wraps up this edition of the Patricia Raskin Pots of Living show. Um, to find me, Patricia at PatriciaRaskin.com. And you can see all the great guests in my newsletter by signing up. And also, if you're looking to do your own podcast, I've interviewed over 5,000 guest experts. And if you want to get that positive message out, I certainly can help you. Um, remember, stay healthy, stay happy, get the support you need, and know you can make your dreams come true. Until next time, I'm Patricia Raskin. Bye for now. Thank you for tuning in to this week's edition of The Patricia Raskin Show. Be sure to join Patricia Raskin and another amazing guest next Monday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have an outstanding week.